0: The tiger tamer who went to sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's
1: original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday, or listen to the whole series immediately, ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com.
0: Hello, and welcome to Life of the Week, where leading historians delve into the lives of some of history's most intriguing and significant figures. From ancient Egyptian pharaohs and medieval warriors to daring 20th century spies. Rudyard Kipling is beloved by many for children's books like The Jungle Book and Just So Stories and inspirational poems like If. But he was also called the Bard of Empire and known for writing controversial poem The White Man's Burden. For today's Life of the Week episode, Professor Janet Montefiore tells Rebecca Franks more about the writer's life and contested legacy. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. In today's episode, as part of our Life of the Week series, we're going to be turning the spotlight on Rudyard Kipling. So let's dive straight in. Can you tell us who Rudyard Kipling was?
1: Rudyard Kipling was a writer. In his time, he was world famous, and he's still pretty well known. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1907. He was the youngest person ever to win it, and I think he's still the youngest person. He was born in 1865 in Bombay, India, where his father was then a teacher at the art college. His early life has been absolutely idyllic. He wrote a memoir, something of myself published posthumously and he describes it as light and colour and golden and purple fruits. His early life was paradise, I think. He didn't see much of his parents. He says that in the evenings, the Ama would say, speak English now to Mama and Papa, because, of course, the children were all grew up speaking Hindi as their mother tongue, and they would go and say their stilted sentences to Mama and Papa. So it was all joy until he was five. What happened was the parents took both their children on a visit to England. This had happened before. But what happened this time was that they left the children behind with foster parents, and without warning, they just disappeared. That's what English officers, officials in foreign countries did. The children were sent what was called home. It was a very, very common story. I think it was felt that the Indian servants would spoil the children and the children wouldn't have the right kind of upbringing. They were treated like little gods in the nursery and their parents rightly thought this wouldn't do for them to go up like that. And they had to speak with the right kind of accent too. It wouldn't do to learn English from Indians. And so they went home and the boys would have their schooling at home and so would the girls. And the foster parents were horrible. Kipling in his memoir called The House in South Sea where they lived, The House of Desolation. And he wrote a hot, rending story about it called *Barbar Bar Black Sheep. There was bullying, there was abuse... He was there for six years. In the end, he had a sort of breakdown. And he used to spend Christmases with his mother's sister. And one Christmas, the beloved aunt noticed that things were not good with him. He was actually attacking a tree. And she said, what on earth are you doing, Ruddy? And he said, I thought the tree was grandma. So she wrote to Sister Alice in Bombay and said, look, there's something seriously wrong. And Alice came home and found both her children, sort of didn't know her, of course, And there's a story that when she came to kiss her son goodnight in bed, he threw up his hand like that because what he expected was that she would hit him. That marked both Rudyard and his sister for life. Neither of them ever fully got over it. I was going to ask, what was the impact in his case? Well, it was sort of complicated. Given this traumatic background, he was very resilient. He was sent to this rather tough school in Devon, which basically prepared officers for the army. And Kipling was never going to be able to do that, be an army officer because of his short sight. But he enjoyed the school and he made two very good friends there. And he wrote one of his most light-hearted books about his experiences of school. It's called Storky and Co. And in that, they all appear under their school nicknames. They were really Kipling, Dunsterville and Beresford. And, you know, he made friendships. I think he was just sort of able to hang on. It was his sister who suffered worse in the long run. Because when she grew up, she wasn't expected to work, of course. She was expected to marry. And she managed to pick somebody whom she was unhappy with. And she twice collapsed into psychotic breakdowns. And the second of them, she was sort of so bad that she was psychotic for, I think, about at least about eight years. Circumstances were much more propitious for Ruddy. He had a job to do, he had things to do, and he had this enormous talent for writing. But, you know... This practice of sending children, quote unquote, home to total strangers, I think it very often was a disaster. Kipling wrote this short story about it, Barbar Bar, Bar Sheep, and it was published while he was still in India. I mean, he was devoted to his parents, and you won't find a crossword he says about them in the memoir, but I cannot help feeling that he took his writer's revenge by publishing that story while they were still in India, and he knew they would read it.
0: That's interesting, the role that the writing played in being able to express actually what had happened. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about his writing when he started and if you could maybe briefly trace his journey to becoming a published writer. It seems like it was something he's turned a lot of his life into his writing. Well, he did and he
1: didn't. I mean, Barbar Black Sheep is autobiographical, but Kipling very rarely wrote directly of his own experiences. Kipling fell in love with language very early on. He read and read and that was his escape and he started writing as a schoolboy and a great deal of what he wrote was pastiche and parody. He discovered Browning. Browning's volume of poetry men and women was actually thrown at him by a classics master in a rage because Kipling's the sort of Latin was so poor and he read it and he completely fell for it and it was a huge influence on him because Browning was the great master of the monologue and Kipling learned from that, and not only in his poems, but his stories. There was a young woman called Flo Garrard, whom he sort of fell for when he was 14, and he wrote love poems to her, and he considered himself engaged to her when he went out to India, but she didn't think she was engaged to him. It never came to anything. But he was writing then, and even before he'd sent his poems home and even before he arrived in India, his mother had, without his permission collected them and had them published as a book called, embarrassing title, Schoolboy Lyrics. And Kipling was absolutely furious with her. And the first thing he published after that was a book of parodies that he wrote with his sister called Echoes, many of which are very good. You know, Kipling could be tremendously witty. And after that, the first book he published in India was a book of satirical poems about the British in India called Departmental Ditties. And the stories came later. His first stories he wrote were also written for the paper he worked for, the Civil and Military Gazette. They were called turnovers because they were printed on one column and then you turned over the page. And they had to be no more than 1,500 words long. And he collected them in 1886 into his first collection, Plain Tales from the Hills. And that got noticed. It even got a review in England. Because all all this was when he was still in India. And then he went on writing these stories. They got better and better. And they were published in booklet form by the Railway Library. They're now collector's items. It's about six stories to a booklet. Those include The Soldier Stories and The Man Who Would Be King. That was one of those booklets. So even before he arrived in London in 1890, when he was 25, he had a lot of work under his belt already.
0: Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fed, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And then his work really shot to success with the British public. I wondered what put him on the map and what appealed to people
1: about his writing. It was so good. (laughs) For a start, well, it was two things, really. I mean, it's not that people had never written about India and the English in India, but no one had done it as well as Kipling. It was the freshness and the vividness of their stories and their variety of subjects. I mean, he did write about English people in India, the sort of Shimla stories, which are all about sort of intrigues and courtships and things. And then about the officer's devotion to duty, there's several stories about that. Then there are stories mostly in dialogue about what we would call squaddies, and were then known as Tommies, i.e. the ordinary soldiers, the other ranks. And also he was interested in the Indians themselves. And at least in one of these little booklets, in black and white, there are four or five stories that are written entirely in the voice of somebody speaking the vernacular. And Kipling invented a kind of English as an equivalent for what he called the Indian vernacular, Hindi and Urdu are very closely related. And as he was based in Lahore, in what is now Pakistan, I think most of what he spoke was Urdu. And, you know, all that was totally new and it was amazing. And people were rightly amazed. You know, it wasn't wrong that Kipling so promptly became a celebrity. I think Henry James said of him, he was the man of the greatest genius as opposed to talent that I've ever met. He was popular immediately and he stayed popular through his lifetime. I mean, he became unpopular with... Intellectuals after the Boer War, largely for political reasons. But he went on selling very well and he sold masses in the USA and indeed worldwide. He was a globally successful author and he stayed that way.
0: How did he portray India in his writings? I wonder what sort of connection his portrayal had with the reality of life there.
1: Well, that's actually it's far too big a question to answer here. You know, India is vast. You say, how realistic was it? I think you can say this much, that Kipling knew more about North India, both the colonial English officials and the Indians, and particularly the Indian peasants. He always sympathised with the peasants. He did not like the educated elite for political reasons, but also they tended to be Bengali Hindus, and he greatly preferred Islam to Hinduism. He knew more about India than any other English creative writer. He aimed at realism and in certain respects he just succeeded. But of course his version of India is very selective, and it was from the beginning, coloured by his imperialist and colonialist views, but it's a lot less blinkered than his contemporaries were. I mean, he was a strong supporter of, of empire. Uh, he believed firmly that only the English could rule India, and that it was a mistake ever to let Indians rule themselves, and he was pretty venomous about sort of Indian nationalism. And Kim, in that novel, almost all the characters are Indians. All the interesting characters are Indians. And it's a loving and sympathetic portrait of British India. But of course, it leaves quite a lot out. And in particular, it leaves out the rise of Indian nationalism. There is a character in the story who is a retired soldier in the British Army. And he recalls what the English call the mutiny in 1857, Indians know it as the first national uprising, it was the Great Rebellion against the English, and this old soldier remembers it, but he remembers it as a madness agent of the army and the officers, and they rose against the English and slaughtered them and slaughtered the women, and they were later called, he says, to most strict account. Well, that's one way of putting it. So, to that extent, it's an unrealistic portrayal of India. But then the lives of the ordinary people, the farmers and the shopkeepers, and it is rem- rendered with sort of warmth and sympathy and glamour. I mean, a lot of Indians really like him because of the sympathetic portrayal it gives of ordinary Indians. Nirad Chowdhury, if you've heard of him, famous intellectual, he wrote an article called The Finest Novel About India in English. And... Chowdhury actually preferred Kim to force his passage to India. Indian intellectuals and academics might not feel the same way, but Chowdhury did.
0: That leads us into perhaps discussing a little more his views on empire and imperialism. There was a piece in The New Yorker which said Kipling has been variously labelled a colonialist, a jingoist, a racist, an anti-Semite, a misogynist, a right-wing imperialist warmonger. And though some scholars have argued that his views were more complicated than he is given credit for, to some degree, he really was all those things. How fair, in your opinion, is that assessment?
1: The answer is sort of, sort of. I don't agree to all that list. He was a imperialist, there's no doubt about that. He was called the part of empire. He was a racist. Well, with India and Indians, he admired them and sympathised with them. Although, you know, with the caveat that only the English could rule. And on Indians and Irish and Jews, he was very ambivalent. He wrote sympathetically about them all. I mean, in the Puck story, The Treasure of the Law... One of the characters is a Jew, Cadmiel, who is completely the hero of the story, though he became much more hostile to Jews after the Great War because he loathed Germans and he identified Jews with Germans. Where I think he's unredeemably racist is when he writes or thinks about Africans. Misogynist, I don't accept. A misogynist is somebody who hates women. Kipling did not. He wrote very sympathetically about women. He also admired several women writers and wrote fan letters to them, but... Here's the thing, you can have imaginative sympathy with peoples like Jews and Irish and English and women, and Kipling did, but that doesn't mean that you support their rights. And in fact, Kipling turned sour on all these groups when they start demanding their rights. So, you know, his Irish soldier, Terence Malvani is one of his most sympathetic characters, but he hated Irish nationalism with a passion. He fell out with Lord Bedefork later after the Irish War of Independence and the establishment of the Free State, which Beaverbrook went along with as a fait accompli. And Beaverbrook was a good friend of Kipling's. Kipling simply broke with him about that. And a warmonger was the other one. I suppose there were wars that he sort of cheered on. If you're thinking of the First World War, he was a strong supporter of it. And he thought Britain had to fight. And he thought that countries had to defend themselves and there had to be armies he admired soldiers and he admired martial heroism and so on. He thought the North West Frontier had to be defended and all that. But there are plenty of decent conservatives who believe that. So I would make some qualifications about that. I mean, some of Kipling's opinions I don't defend and I hate them. But he's this wonderful storyteller and he's wonderful, wonderful wordsmith and he has this wonderful imaginative sympathy, which very few do. So there was a real split between the writer Kipling and the man Kipling in his life? Well, there was and there wasn't. He was also a lovely friend to his friends and a family man. I mean, the letters that he writes to his family are sort of full of warmth and joking and sympathy. But, I mean, Kipling wrote a poem, it's in Kim, about the two-sided man. Much I owe to the soil that grew, more to the life that fed, but most to Allah who gave me two... Separate sides to my head. I would go without shirts or shoes, friends, tobacco or bread, sooner than for an instant lose either side of my head. So (laughs) you could say he anticipated intuitively the left brain or the right brain. He had a name for his own writing genius, you know. He writes about it in something of myself. He called it my demon, which he's spelt D A E M O N. And it doesn't mean a devil, it means like. Socrates, you may remember, had a daimon, a spirit who spoke to him. And when he was writing his best work, it was almost as if the diamond dictated it. He said, when the diamond's with you, you can't go wrong. You know, it's almost as if something was speaking through you. But that only applied to the very best work. You had to have talent and you had to have craft. You had to really work at it. And
0: his work for children, the Just So stories, the Jungle Book, for instance, really has endured. I mean, I'm interested in what gifts made him a good storyteller for children and also why that sort of escaped in a way being sunk by his political views that some of them, you know, seem very unacceptable now.
1: The Just So stories are enchanting. I mean, they have never been surpassed and I don't think they ever will be. His imagination takes over there. And as I say, I think he was really much more into the culture of India than people have realised, and it was a culture of storytelling, and I think some of the storytelling he may have learned from Indians. There's a story in one of his early collections in which there is a sort of wise man called Gobind, who is a kind of early precursor of the Lama, and he speaks stories, and in his stories he was kind of completely off the leash. It is really very paradoxical that Kipling was known for upholding the empire, Upholding the law, he believed strongly in the law, he believed in discipline. Quite a lot of poems about that. And yet he wrote these children's books, in which, I mean, Kim and Mowgli, in which the hero never has to do a stroke of work and is gloriously free. He is abandoned in the jungle, but he's adopted by wolves, and he has friends, Bagheera, Baloo, and the snake car. It's wonderfully exotic, it's wonderfully vivid and fresh, and he just is an enchanter. And, you know, the Jungle Books are immensely popular in India now. And when Disney made the second film of the Jungle Books, the one that came out in 2016, do you know it broke all box office records in Mumbai, even for Bollywood. I think quite a lot of Indians don't even know that it's by Kipling. I think that's the ultimate compliment. He was very good at telling stories to children, you know. There are photographs of him on the deck of a ship telling stories in a circle of children around him, obviously enchanted. And he went on being good at that. I mean, this is an interesting thing. His daughter, Josephine, died when she was six of pneumonia on a disastrous family trip to New York. And, you know, some parents might have withdrawn from their surviving children, but Kipling didn't. He was very close to John and Elfie. And even after John died, he was kind of a father figure to various young men. He had godsons whom he sort of looked after and wrote to at school. And he went on loving children and being delighted to tell stories with them. I think that's incredibly impressive. I suppose it must have been partly his sort of natural sympathy and, and partly his gift. Well, he sounds like a complex man. I mean,
0: if you had to kind of describe his character in a few words,
1: how would you sum him up? As somebody who was loving and ambitored, somebody who identified with authority and created outlaws, as somebody who was a British patriot, travelled abroad whenever he could, was always happy when he was in France, very much a family man. He clung to those who were close to him. Part of him could be very bitter and furiously angry, although he channelled most of the anger into politics. He wasn't given to personal rows with people. And even when he broke with Beaverbrook, I think it was a question of not answering letters and not visiting. He wasn't somebody who went and bawled people out.
0: We haven't mentioned his marriage and you mentioned family life was very important to him. Could you just tell us briefly the story of their relationship?
1: Okay. well, Carrie Kipling was the sister of Walcott Ballestier, who was a young American, a literary American who became Kipling's best friend. And, that you know, the two of them were very close. They actually wrote a novel together. They started a novel together about America and India. It's pretty awful, actually. Walcott was a kind of figure in literary London, quite well known. But he died young of typhoid, and Kerry was with him. And the story goes that Kipling had been enormously successful in London, but it was too much for him, and he collapsed into a kind of mental breakdown. And he recovered from it by taking a very long sea voyage, which went all the way down South Africa, New Zealand, and then to India. And the idea was that he would go to Lahore and spend Christmas with his parents. And he got there, I think, about sort of December the 21st or 22nd, and he got a telegram from Kerry saying, Walcott dying, come back to me. And off he went. He never spent that Christmas with his parents. He never went back to India. And he rushed back. And he did marry Carrie, and they moved to America, to Brattleboro, which is where her family came from. They lived there very happily for four years. It didn't work out because of a frightful family row with his brother-in-law. And that period in America was the period of most of Kipling's finest writing. It was either written then or begun then. He wrote the Jungle Books there. He wrote many inventions, Captain's Courageous, two mm-hmm. collections, very good collections of short stories, and he didn't write Kim there, but he began writing and thinking about it. It was immensely fertile, that period. So they came back to England and they settled. They bought this house, Batemans, in Sussex, which became their permanent home, and Kerry ran it. By that time, they had three children. Josephine, the best beloved, was the oldest. She was born in New England, and so was Elsie. And then came John, the son, you know, Kipling adored his children. There's a book of his Letters to them, which Roger Lonson and Green edited. It's called Oh Beloved Kids, Mm. and they're illustrated with charming drawings because, you know, Kipling was actually a gifted artist. So his family life, they were very close. He fiercely guarded his privacy, he couldn't bear people looking into his life. He burned most of the letters that he received, and Carrie did too. There was these sort of bonfires of personal papers. But the six volumes of his published letters, and that's not all, because, of course, he didn't, couldn't burn the letters that he sent. But he did like his prophecies, no doubt about that.
0: If we could turn to the end of his life now, how and when did he
1: die and what happened to his reputation after his death? He died when he was just turned 70 in 1936. He died of a perforated duodenal ulcer. He had had trouble with his stomach from the moment that John Kipling joined the army in 1915. And he sort of suffered badly with indigestion. It went on for 20 years. And the medics can't have been that good because it was finally diagnosed as a stomach ulcer in 1932. But by then, it was way too late for the ulcer to be treated. And I suppose after that, it was borrowed time. And, you know, it went. And I think they operated, but they couldn't save his life. And he died. So what was his reputation? Well... It was a kind of mixed reputation. He still sold very widely all his lifetime and he was respected by a lot of people. He he kind of stood for the Conservatives and they admired him and his ashes were ceremonially buried in Westminster Abbey, which doesn't happen to very many people. So there was this, I suppose, split rather characteristically between his public reputation, which was very high, and his reputation with intellectuals who tended to dismiss him, especially if they'd been made to learn if at school. So his reputation was as ambivalent. With intellectuals, it was low. Publicly, it was high. And it continued to be high. I mean, there was a ship named HMS Kipling, for instance. T.S. Eliot put together an anthology of Kipling's called A Choice of Kipling's Verse, which was published in 1941. And George Orwell's essay on Kipling, of which you may have heard of, was actually a review essay of the Kipling collection. And he always interested fellow writers, fellow poets. Auden wrote a very good essay, review essay on it too. And the American poet Randall Jarrell loved Kipling's fiction and wrote some splendid essays on it. And then in the 1950s, there was a book called The Art of Rudyard Kipling written by Joyce Tompkins. And that made the literary case for Kipling... And his reputation grew among critics during the 60s. They tended to concentrate on his fiction. It's very interesting, actually. Up to about 1940, if anybody writes anything about Kipling, it's usually about the poetry. After about 1960, it's almost always about the fiction. His reputation is still ambivalent. But there's a lot of literary interest in him. And I can tell you that there is a steady stream of PhD theses, more often than not, published on different aspects of Kipling. If listeners
0: want to be acquainted with the best and worst of Kipling, what would you recommend? Where should they look?
1: I think the best are Kim, The Jungle Books, The Just So Stories. I have to say that the best collection of Kipling is the one in the Oxford University Press World's Classics, edited by Daniel Carlin. He's collected the stories and he's collected poems, and that's got the best of Kipling. That's got the best of Kipling's fiction. Because, you know, the children's books are wonderful, but you know, we've not talked about his short stories for adults, but they're amazing too. I and mean, some of them are so rich and so concentrated, they, you know, other people would have made a novel out of them. The worst, if you want to look for his worst, probably his propaganda poems, probably beginning with The White Man's Burden. But the poems he wrote for the First World War are pretty awful, most of them. There's a dreadful poem by called call the, the Holy War, which is about John Bunyan, which makes Bunyan's allegories of salvation, sort of prophecies of the great war avant la lettre. And I'll give you the first stanza. A tinker out of Bedford, a vagrant oft in quad, a private under Fairfax, a minister of God, eight blinded generations ere Armageddon came, he knew it and he drew it, and Bunyan was his name. I mean, for God's sake, a vagrant often quad. You do see what people meant when they called Kipling vulgar. <laughs> There's one or two rather reactionary fables that don't come off, like A Walking Delegate, which is all about horses in a field, and one of them is a kind of trade unionist and tries to get the other horses to go on strike, and they, the other horses know what's what and kick him to death. So I don't much care for that one. But particularly, Kipling's public poems... He draws on the music hall for barrack-room ballads, but for his public poems he draws on hymns, they're, and they're kind of solemn, they're sort of pious, they're statements of belief, and the kind of, you know, the pious orthodox side of Kipling. And incidentally, about the white man's burden, I have always thought that its formal model is the hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And I suppose it's saying something similar.
0: Could you actually maybe just tell us a bit more about that poem? So it was written in 1899 and it's often the one that's sort of held up as an example of his attitudes.
1: Well, it is. It's got a very particular history. The people who were being told to take up the white man's burden are Americans. It's addressed to the USA. And the reasoning for that is that in 1897 is when they occupied the Philippines and they were there for 50 years. And Kipling thought that was a jolly good thing. He was all for the white nations occupying what he called savages. And you couldn't, I mean, obviously, given Kipling's politics, you couldn't expect him to sympathise with a democratic revolution. So that poem, any dark-skinned race ruled by white men, became automatically savage. So he calls them the old New Court sullen peoples, half devil and half child as if they'd just come out of the jungle. But then, of course, imperialists always do say that sort of thing about the people they conquer. I mean, really, it's the only justification for holding down an empire that you're bringing civilization, even if you aren't. So he wants Americans to take up their imperial responsibilities like the British Empire, because Kipling's idea of the British Empire is noble officials looking after the natives in a fatherly sort of way and looking after their interests. So, I mean, obviously, he idealised it. British Empire. That's what the white man's burden is doing. It's sort of encouraging the Americans to become sort of stern and just rulers of the world like us. And it becomes obvious in retrospect, you know, just how much fantasy there is in all this. So in 1996, the poem If was voted the UK's favourite
0: poem in a poll by the BBC. Can we discuss that?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, so If has always been incredibly popular, and I mean, there are good reasons for that. If you actually look at the advice that is being given in If, it's sort of the golden mean, you know, be brave but don't be foolhardy, carry on, even when you're disappointed, sort of bounce back and carry on. It's a sort of wisdom poem, isn't it? And it is not a poem I've ever cared for, in large part because of the punchline. I think, well, you'll be a man, my son. Right, well, what about me then? But it's a poem, I have to say, that has meant an enormous amount to many people. I once read a piece in the New York Times by a man who was black. He'd had rotten luck in his life and he was in jail and he came across If in it. And he said it turned his life around for him. You know, he read this thing, he thought, I can do this, I will do this. And it meant A great deal to a lot of people. It's also probably the most often parodied of Kipling's poems, as you may know, the endless parodies of it. There are even some feminist parodies of Liv. And Kipling himself was wry about it. He writes about it in his memoir. He says, I wrote this poem which is full of the kind of advice that's very easy to give and very hard to take. And it became tremendously popular. And he says, it did me no good with the young who would say to him, why did you write that beastly poem that I had to copy out in detention? <laughs> I think, I mean, to do the poem justice, I say reluctantly. It's on the whole being used for good magic. You know, the white man's burden is, to my mind, an irredeemable, sort of insofar as it's a magical poem in that sense, it's an evil magic. But if is, you know, I admit it's a good thing, even if it's not my favourite poem, and I have never myself been inspired by it.
0: That was Professor Janet Montefiore speaking to Rebecca Franks. We'll be back with more explorations of history's most interesting figures
1: every Tuesday.
0: Thanks for listening to today's Life of the Week. Be sure to join us again next time to learn about another fascinating figure from the past.